Well, good morning. Let me add my uh, welcome to Eric's and Mandy's earlier. I'm, my name is Rob Sweet. I'm one of the pastors, one of the teaching pastors on our team. If you're new, we have a unique approach to teaching. Uh, last week you heard Michael Easley. This week I'll be here. You'll hear a couple other guys throughout the rotation as well. Uh, one thing we're committed to is God's Word and teaching it through passage by passage, verse by verse. And so this week we come to a passage that we're not going to shy away from. It's an usual passage. It's a strange passage. It kind of makes us recoil a little bit when we read it. We're not going to shy away from it. We're going to dig through it as we continue through our study of Abraham. On that note, let me say this. Last week we told you that that last week's sermon was probably a PG-13 sermon due to the content in the text. Same with this week. So if you didn't get that word ahead of time, you may just want to glance through the text and read that through and make sure you're comfortable if you have your kids with you and that's your call, your decision. Just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Um, Well, a couple of things I want to hit before we dive into the text. First of all, if you missed Michael's message last week, Michael Easley was here teaching the first half of Genesis 19, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Wonderful sermon, very helpful for us, very relevant for us in in this day and context. I know there's a lot of conversations at the water cooler and other places about the recent Supreme Court decision. So if you missed that sermon, you can go online uh, and just hop on our website. You may or may not know we actually have... Brentwood messages and Franklin messages both on there and you can find those they're different sermons even if the teacher is the same a lot of times they'll change it up they'll tweak it in fact Michael told me he always likes his his Franklin messages best so um, if you're going to go online listen to the Franklin messages uh, would be my encouragement But uh, I do want to also highlight michaelincontext.com, which is Michael's website. He does his broadcast show daily from there. He has some excellent resources about the Supreme Court decision, and you may or may not be aware of those. If you haven't jumped on that website, would encourage you to do that. Some excellent resources. And then one more way that we want to equip you to have these conversations well. This Wednesday, there will be a simulcast that a church in Austin, Texas is hosting. And I just want to read you the the subtopic. It's on the screen behind me, but... Uh, equipping the church for a post-marriage culture. And that's really what we want to do. We want to be about equipping you all for these conversations, holding truth and holding love and doing those together really well. So if you're available this Wednesday night to check that out, um, simulcast, you just go to that website. It's also printed in your program this morning. We would encourage you to do it. Well, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. We're in the second half of the chapter. This is a sad story. It's a strange story. And uh, I'll be honest, when I got this assignment that I knew I was going to be teaching this passage, this was like way back a couple months ago, I was kind of dreading it. Now, some of you may be curious, how do these teaching pastors divide up the texts? And how do they know who's going to teach what passage? And they arm wrestle, you know? It's like, what do they do? Well, it's actually a very detailed, intricate, long, hard process that we walk through. And last time when we were dividing up the passages for the Abraham series, uh, I said, you know, we should take a picture of how this works so we can open the curtain a little bit and show you guys what it looks like. So we have a a picture of how the process works. We'll throw that up on the screen there. (laughs) Now, just to be clear, Lloyd's holding the straws, right? And that's my hand grabbing that itty-bitty little green straw. And that's how I got to Genesis 19, 30 through 38 this morning. That's our process. Well, believe it or not, there's a lot in this passage for us. I found a lot in this passage for me. And you may be surprised when you first read it. I think God wants to use this in our hearts. 
Let's start in, I want to go back to verse 29, and I'm just going to read 29. Michael covered it last week, but it's the summary of the first half of the story of chapter 19. And so let's go back and just review that verse. Genesis 19, verse 29, thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Now, remember the story, Lot was, or Sodom rather, was a very wicked city. Lot and his family were living there. The angels come to see if there are 10 righteous people. If there were 10, the city was going to be saved. There weren't 10. In fact, as we learned, there wasn't even really one. I mean, Lot wasn't really righteous, was he? He sort of had to get pulled out by, by, by his shirt collar almost. He wanted to stay. He wasn't ready to leave. And the angels pull him out, he and his family. And he bargains, he negotiates on the way out. And he says, don't send me to those mountains and hills far away. Send me to this little town called Zoar. And he's in Zoar. He's living in Zoar. We don't know how long, but it wasn't long before Lot moves again. And that's what we're going to see in verse 30. Let's read that. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Now I want to point out a couple observations about this. Why was he afraid of Zoar? That was the town he asked for. He specifically said, send me to this little town. Zoar means small in Hebrew, this little bitty town. We don't know why he's now afraid to stay in Zoar. But I think it's probably because he doesn't trust God's word. God said, I'll spare the city. I won't destroy the city. And Lot doesn't trust that, I believe. And so now he flees and he ends up in a cave. Now, the section heading in my copy of Scripture, this is in the NASB. Yours may read a little bit different, but I have a section heading before verse 30. And mine says, Lot is debased. Lot is debased. Now, I looked that word up because I, I know what it means, but it's a word we don't use a whole lot. So I said, let me just review what, what does that word mean. So here's how Webster defines debase. To lower the value or reputation of someone or something to make someone or something less respected. And this is what we're going to see. In fact, we've already seen this happen with Lot. Think about the trajectory of his life. He started out as just this young nephew of Abraham. He followed his uncle into the promised land, became wealthy, sojourned in Egypt with Abraham. They, Abraham and Lot came out of there as wealthy men. They had flocks. They had herds. They had servants. In fact, remember, it, it was so wealthy, the two of them, that they had to split up. And, and Lot gave Abraham the choice of what land to take. And Lot chose the land. He camps outside of Sodom, eventually moves into Sodom, becomes even more wealthy. And when the angels find him in Sodom, he's sitting by the gate, which Michael taught us this last week. That means he was sort of a judge. He was an influential, wealthy part of that community. He'd done very well for himself. He invites the angels to his house. See, he'd gone from a tent to a House. I don't know about you. I prefer house living over tent living. I'm not a big camper, right? Lot was wealthy. He was privileged. He was influential in Sodom. And now he's escaped with just the clothes on his back and he runs to a cave. How far Lot has fallen. A cave is an interesting study in Scripture. I took some time over the last couple weeks to look up every reference in the Bible where a cave is mentioned. And I found that every reference can be classified in one of two categories. 
The first context where a cave is mentioned is a cave is a place of hiding and desperation. It's where you go when you don't have any other place to go. So think about David running away from Saul. Where does he go? He hides in the cave. His life is in danger. He cries out to God from the cave. Some of our the most desperate but beautiful psalms were written from caves by David. There's another place where you find uh, contextually where a cave is mentioned. It's a place of death. It's where you would bury someone. So uh, in a few weeks, we'll talk about Sarah, Abraham's wife. When she dies, Abraham buries her in a cave. He himself will be buried in that same cave, along with Isaac, when Isaac dies later. And then Jacob, who at this time is living in Egypt, says, bring my body back to the promised land. I want to be buried in the promised land. He's buried in that cave as well. So a cave is a place of hiding. A cave is a place of death. In other words, it's not a place you ever choose to be. How far Lot has fallen. Well, I believe... Lot chooses the cave essentially because he's done with life. He doesn't want to start over again. Now, where am I getting this from? Remember, he could have gone to Abraham. Why doesn't he? Abraham loved his nephew. He rescued him. Remember when he was captured by by the enemy armies? This was several chapters ago. He pleaded for him, assuming that, that Lot was one of the righteous men when he was pleading with God to save Sodom. Abraham loves Lot. I believe he could have gone back there. Instead, he finds himself in a cave. And I think what Lot is essentially doing is he's essentially saying, I'm done. I don't want to start over. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my reputation. I've lost my position. I've lost my wife. I'm going to go into the place of desperation, the place of death, and I'm going to live out my days, however many I have left. I'm done. Now, the problem is he's making that decision not just for himself, but for his two daughters, right, who were with him. Let's see what happens with these two daughters in verse 31. Then the firstborn daughter said to the younger, Our father is old. There is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Now, here's what I want to say about these two verses. There is a tension deliberately in the text, and I want you to feel the tension. Now, what do I mean by tension? On the one hand, when you hear these verses, you're thinking, ooh, like, no, that's just wrong. And you're right. Like, you need to, you, that's, that's a right, good, normal reaction to that. But on the other hand, I want you to see verse 31. I want you to see the predicament these women are in. I want you to see the plight that they're in. So I'll describe the tension this way. On the one hand, you have an immoral choice. On the other hand, you have a very real and legitimate plight. Now, it doesn't doesn't excuse the choice they made. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these women. In this culture, an unmarried woman, if she was not connected to a patriarch or a a father of the household, was going to die. She had no prospects. She had no hope. There was no welfare system. There was no police force to protect her. There was no governmental system. She was going to be out on her own. In that culture, she was not going to be able to provide for for herself, and she had no future. 
So Lot was essentially assigning death to his daughters along with himself when he hid himself in the cave. They had no prospects. They had no hope for a future. There were no eligible men. They'd lost their future husbands in Sodom, you know, as they died. And here these women are, and they have a plight that is real and legitimate. Notice the way they exaggerate a little bit. Um, It says there's not a man on earth to come into us. I've been around some young single ladies that have that same perspective. There's not a man on the earth, right? I used to be a young adult pastor at a different church, and I was like, where are the men? You know, this is what these, these were saying. I was like, yeah, I get it. There's not a man on the earth, right? That's how we feel sometimes. Now, it's an exaggeration. However, it highlights a legitimate, true, desperate situation. They were in trouble. They had no access to anybody in this cave. And then notice the purpose clause in these verses, so that we may preserve our family through our Father. Let me ask you a question. Whose responsibility was it to preserve the family? The patriarch, right? Lot's responsibility. This is further indictment on his passivity, Lot had sort of given up his God-given responsibility to ensure a hope and a future for his daughters. And his daughters are in a desperate situation. Don't forget that just the previous uh, top of the chapter, Lot had offered these same two daughters up to the mob. And he says, do whatever you want with them. This angry, lustful mob. Can you imagine that as a father? There's no way these women would have felt protected and cared for by their father at this point in time. They were in a desperate situation. The problem is they took their very real need, their very true legitimate plight, and they tried to solve it by making a very immoral, wrong decision. We see that in verse 32. Now, this kind of incest, even in this cultural context, would have been seen as wrong, would have been seen as wicked and evil. And that says something, because this was an evil context that these ladies had, been, had grown up in, in Sodom. You might think of it this way. There's a sense that the family escaped Sodom only to bring Sodom with them. Right, so the upbringing of these girls, and now they're sort of bringing sort of that same level of just depravity uh, along with them. Now, it's interesting the names of Lot's daughters are not recorded in the Scripture. In a culture obsessed with ancestral history, that's actually significant. It's almost as if the narrator is saying, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped from the face of the earth. There's not even a trace of the names of these women left on the face of the earth. They are nameless. But there is a deliberate tension in this, isn't it? Yes, immoral choice. Yes, wrong. Yes, wicked. Yes, ooh. (laughs) But also desperate. Real need. Right? They just want to live. They want to hope. They want a future. I just want you to hold that tension. We're going to come back to that tension. Toward the end. Now let's see how their their plan uh, unfolds. Verse thirty three. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, "Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father." So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, 
both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The picture we see of Lot in these verses is a man in such a hopeless, drunken stupor that he has no conscious understanding or no memory of what is happening to him. There's no question Lot is the victim, but it's a little hard to feel too sorry for him at this point in the story, isn't it? He has become utterly and completely passive in the most literal sense you can imagine. Bruce Waldke, an Old Testament scholar, says it this way, Lot, who would know, or sorry, who would offer his daughters to be known by gang rapists, now does not know his daughters even as he impregnates them. Gordon Wenham writes, We are just left to pity Lot in this last and most painful loss of honor at the hands of those who should have loved him the most. The lowering or the debasing of Lot is complete and it is extreme. And unfortunately, this is all we hear about Lot in the story. This is the end of his days. As far as we know, he dies in that cave. His daughters bury them. They're going to have sons, which we can grow up and provide for them. We're going to talk, talk about that in a minute. But this is the end of the line for Lot. This is his epitaph. Isn't it sad? It's tragic. Let's go on and finish the text and see what happens with these uh, children that will be born. Verse 37, the firstborn daughter bore a son, called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the sons of Ammon, or the Ammonites, to this day. There's some wordplay going on in the Hebrew. Moab sounds a lot like the Hebrew for from our father. (laughs) A very literal name that this woman gives to her son. Ben-Ami means son of my people. From our father is one son of my people for the other. These two babies end up birthing people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and those people groups would become a thorn in the side of Israel. They were enemies. They harassed them. They enticed them. They drew them away from God as the story will unfold. So you can imagine as a Hebrew in the original audience, hearing Moses tell this story, and Moses writing this down, or probably a scribe writing it down from Moses, uh, the Hebrew people were about to take the promised land. They're about to become this nation. And the Hebrew people would have said, oh, you mean these hundreds of years, the animosity between us and the Moabites and us and the Ammonites is traced back to this one private sin in the darkness of a cave? And so you start to see the first lesson emerge from this text. I'd say it's something like this. Even our so-called personal or private sins can have long-term and devastating consequences. Isn't that just true? I would say even sins that have been forgiven. Now you're saying, hold on, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. My sins have been forgiven. God's not holding those against me. That's absolutely true in terms of justice, in terms of eternity, in terms of your relationship with God. That is 100% true. But sin still has natural consequences. Now, why does sin have natural consequences? Because sin represents stepping apart from God's best for you, God's plan, and kind of going it on your own. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty bad at going it on my own. Sin carries with it natural consequences. That's lesson one. 
Now, I, will, I want to note this because this is one of my favorite parts of the story. There is a redemptive thread in the scripture that starts in the midst of this mess. Now, what do I mean by redemptive thread? 700 years after Moab is born, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter was a woman named Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was living in Moab. She loses the man that she was pledged to be married to. She's in a desperate situation. What does she do? She clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and goes to Naomi's homeland, the land of the promise, right? The land of the Lord. And there in the land of the Lord, she meets a savior, a redeemer, Literally, the family redeemer, a man named Boaz. He falls in love. He marries her. They have a son. What's the son's name? Obed. Obed has a son. Jesse. Jesse has a son. David. And of course, Jesus comes from the line of David. You see the beauty in this? This is redemption. A woman, Ruth, in a very similar predicament to these two sisters, or two daughters of Lot. Yet, She goes to the land of the Lord. She goes to the land of the promise. She associates herself with God. Remember, she says to Naomi, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And what happens? She is saved by the Lord. So lesson for me, lesson for you. God can take our messes. He can take our bad, sinful, immoral choices. He can take the wreck that we make out of our lives and take those ashes and create beauty. In fact, I'd say that's what he does. That's the business that he is in. And that happens even from one of the most terrible passages in the whole Bible that you could come across. Well, I want to keep moving. There's one more lesson I want to bring us to. And this lesson is where, for me, I found myself in this text. And that says a lot because I didn't find myself in this passage for a long time. I was just kind of sitting in judgment of these two women, these two daughters of Lot. Now, how do you get to finding yourself in this passage? Well, I want you to think about Lot's life in totality. In other words, this is the end of the line for him. This is the end of his story. We're not going to hear anything else about him. So it's appropriate for us to, for us to ask, what does his life represent? How did the, the author of the scripture, which ultimately is the Holy Spirit inspiring the, 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 the man Moses to write this down, how is the Holy Spirit using Lot in this narrative? Well, I'd say it this way. He uses Lot as a contrast to Abraham. For those of you that were English majors in college, Lot is a foil. He's a foil to the life of Abraham. So the life choices and legacy of Lot is contrasted in the scripture with the life choices and legacy of Abraham. Doesn't mean Abraham's perfect. Far from it, right? He's going to sin again next week, by the way. So come back for that. But this is the contrast. Now listen to this contrast play out. Abraham lived by faith. Lot lived by sight. Remember, Lot saw the land that he wanted, right? Abraham trusted God. Abraham lived in close communion with God. Lot lived in close communion with evil people, wicked people in Sodom. Abraham lived inside the covenant. Lot lived outside the covenant. By the way, the land that Lot chose was just barely outside of the promised land, just barely. So it was like he still had a connection with God, but he wasn't really in the covenant with God. You see that? 
Another contrast, Abraham lived under God's authority. Lot lived primarily apart from God's authority. You could go on throughout the scripture. It is a great study. The message to the original audience, the Hebrew people, would have sounded something like this. Lot's legacy illustrates a life lived outside of covenant relationship with God and see the fruit that it produces. You, Hebrew people, are descendants of Abraham who lived inside of covenant relationship with God. That's where you want to be. That's where you want to live. That's where you want to stay, right? Message for them is the same message for us. Living outside of communion with God through Jesus Christ, living outside of covenant relationship with God is death. Living inside is life and flourishing. That's the contrast that's going on. Now you see this play out throughout the scripture. I was reading some Proverbs earlier and I came across two Proverbs and I thought, was Solomon thinking of Lot and Abraham when he wrote these Proverbs? I'm like, he must have. Like, listen to this. Listen to Proverbs 11. I'm sorry, Proverbs 14, 11. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Right? Where was Lot living? In a house, in the city, the good life. Where was Abraham living? In a tent, holding the tension of waiting for his land to come available. See, the house of the wicked will be destroyed. The tent of the upright will flourish. And then the very next proverb, verse 12, y'all know this one. There is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Right? This is Lot's Story. This is the, the, the big tombstone message inscribed according to Scripture of how to sum up this man's life. It's not good. It's not happy. It is sad. Now, when did Lot make his choice? In other words, you know, Proverbs 14, there's a way which seems right to a man. When did Lot choose that way that seemed right to him? Well, it was at that critical moment with Abraham. In chapter 13, Abraham takes him up. They go up in a high place. They look over all the land. Abraham says, hey, you know, I'm going to let you choose. So Lot chooses the good land. I want to read this to you, and I want to point a couple things out because you're going to find yourself in this. You're going to find yourself. I hope you do. I did. Uh, 13.10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Foreshadowing. He saw the land that it was like the garden of the Lord. Why did Lot choose that land? It was the obvious choice. It was like the garden of the Lord. Who doesn't want the garden of the Lord? You would have chosen that land. I would have chosen that land. The garden of the Lord. Now listen, I want to reframe your mind on something. That wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't Lot chose the land because it looked good. The problem wasn't Lot wanted to get wealthy. The problem wasn't Lot wanted the good life. The problem wasn't Lot wanted to flourish. You want those things too. I want those things too. We all want the garden. In fact, I'd say it this way. Ever since Adam and Eve, through the original sin in Genesis chapter 3, ever since they lost the privilege of living in the garden, ever since that happened, you and me and every other human being has been trying to get back to the garden. We've been trying to get back to the good life, to flourishing, to right relationships with each other, with God, with the creation. It's in our heart. You were made for the garden. It is not wrong to desire the garden. You were made for it. Now, that's not where Lot went wrong. Where Lot went wrong were the neighbors. 
You see, it's okay to desire the garden of the Lord, but the people that were there didn't want the Lord. So I'm going to go back, take you back to the beginning of the series. Uh, the way we framed this up, the beginning of Abraham, was we said God's original intent for his creation and God's final intent for his creation are one and the same. So in the garden and in the, the new Jerusalem, you know, the heavenly city on earth, one and the same. The people of God living in the place of God with full access to the presence of God. That's what God designs for us. The people of God in the place of God, access to the presence of God. Where did Lot go wrong? He saw something that looked like the place of God, but the people of God weren't there. The presence of God wasn't there. He left the people of God. He left the presence of God. God was with Abraham. The covenant was formed for the promised land, right? Lot goes just outside of it. You see, here's where he went wrong. He thought he could have the garden of the Lord without the Lord. This is a lesson for me, a lesson for you. We can never have the garden of the Lord without the Lord. Now, it's okay to desire things, right? I, I've said that. I want to say it again. It's okay to need things. But when those things that you desire and you need pull you away from core communion with God, you won't get what you actually need or even what you really want. And you'll never be happy. Like, this is the lesson of Lot's life. He tried to have the garden of the Lord without the Lord. His daughters did the same thing. And I want to show you that. What did his daughters want? They just wanted a future. They wanted a hope. They wanted to live. They wanted to flourish. Same things you want. Same things I want. Same things their father had wanted. So the problem is they sought those things apart from God. In other words, instead of crying out to Yahweh, they're saying, God of our father, Lot, you know, even though he didn't follow you very well. God of our uncle Abraham, we are in a plight. We are in a desperate situation. Would you show up? We're crying out to you. We'll die if you don't rescue us. Instead of doing that, here's what they did. They manipulated and they controlled their situation to try to secure for themselves what they knew they needed, what they knew they wanted. I do that. You do that. That's actually what sin is. Sin is trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Underneath every sin there is a core desire and a core need of your heart that is real and legitimate. But you're trying to fill that need and fill that desire in a way that's apart from God's plan for you. And why do you do that? You either don't know God, you don't trust God, or you're just sort of tired of waiting. This is us. This is me. Let's talk about sexual sin for a few minutes because certainly this is where this passage takes us, right? 
what is the deep longing need in our heart that causes us to sin sexually? And whatever that means, you know, obviously there's a lot of different kinds of sexual sins from things that are very overt and obvious like the one we read about in this passage to things that are a lot more subtle and hidden. What's the core need? What's the core longing of your heart every time we sin sexually? Are we not longing for true intimacy, core intimacy with another human being, someone to know us, someone to see us, someone to want us, someone to receive us, someone to say, you are good, you are beautiful, you are desirable. And and, and does not all of us, married, unmarried, wherever, wherever you are in your stage of life, don't you feel that core need that you were made for the garden and we're not living in the garden? Like, it's not perfect. Like, even if you have a good marriage, there's, there's still some unmet pieces in you, aren't there, for your core intimacy? There are, because your spouse was not made to meet your true, desperate need for intimacy. Now listen, we're all broken sexually. Okay, and I'm not just trying to be politically correct when I say that. I mean, I think what Michael said last week is right. The the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But when I say we're all broken sexually, what I mean is, think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. That doesn't describe me, right? Doesn't describe you. That's not the condition we were born in. We live in a crazy, over-sexualized culture and what's actually happening out there in culture and in here in our own hearts is a desperate longing for core intimacy with another human being. Now, you think about that as your plight, that is your predicament, that is your desperation, you've got two choices because it's real, right? The tension in your heart's real. It's real in my heart. You got two choices. One is, you can say, this is a real need and a desire that I have, so I'm gonna go meet that need and meet that desire because I deserve this, whatever this is. A fantasy life, stuff you're looking at online, um, certain novels or literature that you read that kind of just fill that gap and some other illicit relationship. This is what's happening overall in our society all around us, and it's being normalized. It's, it's like, this is okay because it's a real need, right? People need someone that they can be intimate with, Right? Yes, they do. They do. We do. The problem is God has a plan for this. And the problem is, by the way, I'm going to take this one step further. God's plan for this, which is a monogamous lifetime marriage with one man and one woman, God's plan for that is beautiful and it is good and it points us to our true whole need, but it never quite 100% gets there. So even if you're happily married, you still carry with you a bit of your soul that longs for something deeper and richer and greater. It's longing for the garden. Will you try to have the garden of the Lord without the Lord? The daughter's need was real. Could they have chosen a different way? Is there a different way? I want to fast forward in biblical history to the New Testament. I want to take your mind to two other sisters who were living in a very similar cultural context. Two sisters who also had a need, desperate. Two sisters who were now suddenly cut off from provision. You see, they weren't married either. 
and they depended on their brother for life, and he had just died. Two sisters that, amazingly enough, stood outside another cave, the tomb of their brother Lazarus. And they wept, and they hurt, and they were afraid, but they took a different path. They cried out to God. They said, help, help. And what happened? Jesus came. And Jesus stood with them outside of the cave. And before he raised Lazarus back to life in that incredible miracle, he said something to these two women. I want to read it to you. He said, Mary and Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Men and women of Jesus Christ, Jesus says this to you. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. You will taste and see that God is good. Will you cry out? You know, will, will you just say help? Help. Now, here's the thing. And, and I, I wouldn't be shepherding you well if I didn't go to this next place that I'm going to go. There's no promise you'll have your deepest core need met this side of eternity. That is not promised to you. That is not guaranteed to you. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, some of us in small ways, some of us in big ways, will carry this need, this longing, this desperation to be fully known and fully loved and fully received and fully found beautiful. We will carry that to our graves. That's part of the tension of waiting for the promise. This is the example of Abraham. You see, he never got the land, right? He, he walked toward it. He, he, he sojourned through it. He never fully got it. He just waited in this tension, you and I are going to have to hold some tension, men and women. It's what we're called to do. Will you hold it? In your sexual life, will you hold the tension between your legitimate need, your legitimate longing, and what the reality is of your situation? Will you hold that tension with integrity, calling out for rescue to Jesus? Now, there will be a day when the promise will become the reality. That's what we believe. So when Jesus says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God, he is at least talking about that. Now you may taste it in part ahead of time. I hope you do. I pray you do. I don't want you to struggle. I, wa I want you to feel full. And Jesus does say, hey, I've come so you may have life to the full. But, but it's never, it's never perfect. It's never fully what we will experience in the new garden. Right? Our heart longs for that. Believe it is coming. Believe it like Abraham. Wait for it like Abraham. Trust God, even when it doesn't make sense. Our application this morning is a prayer, and I want us to spend some time in prayer together. I'm going to kind of guide you through some prayer. Part of the prayer is going to be a confession. And I'll just tell you right now, we need to confess to God. These are my real needs, my legitimate longings. And, and here are the ways I've been trying to keep those needs and desires getting them met. I mean, this is how I've been trying to pursue these. This is how I've been trying to have the garden of the Lord without you, God. We need to talk to God about that. And then we need to ask him for something. And what we're going to ask him for is we're going to ask him for the faith to believe. Like strong enough faith to hold the tension, right, of waiting, waiting 
for the fullness of life that will come. It will come when we believe. Let's pray that. Father, God, would you, even in this moment, guide us as we pray? Could we seek you well? Could we have open hearts? And God, for some in the room, like they haven't just, they've not been talking to you much lately. They just feel distant from you. This is awkward and hard for them. And what's happening in their mind right now is they want to go somewhere else. They want to check out. They want to think about other things. And you see that. You know that. You want to be with them even in that. So would you help even all of us here to just focus for just a minute on you. And the, the first opportunity we have, men and women, is we, we want to spend some time in confession. And here's what I'd like you to think about just for a minute. What are the, the true deep needs and longings of your heart that, that you've been either tempted to or actually living out trying to fulfill those needs and longings in ways apart from your relationship with God? Just ask God to show you those for a minute. now would you pray for faith? That's, that's something that we're encouraged to ask for in the scripture. And not just faith to intellectually believe the story is true, although that's a starting place, but faith to actually believe that God sees you, that through Jesus Christ, he loves you. Like he desires for you the same things you desire for yourself, fullness of life, flourishing, hope, future. You are promised those things, even though it may not be on your time frame. Would you ask God right now for the faith to believe and to hold the tension of waiting as long as it takes, as long as it takes. And now would you just spend just a few moments declaring to God that you need him. Like even if you don't even feel it right now, just declare, God, I need you. And these are the words of a song we're about to sing. So this prayer will continue through the music. But would you declare this? God, I need you. I'm dependent upon you. I am desperate for you and apart from you I can do nothing and I have nothing 
Father, would you give us the faith to say that with integrity and believe it and give us the faith even now to worship you well through this song. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.